Terra incognita spectator. Terra incognita spectator. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's author is Bill Congreve, something of a powerhouse in Australian speculative fiction as the owner of the much-respected independent press Miradans Books and co-editor with Michelle Marquardt of the definitive years-best Australian SF and fantasy, now in its fourth year. But Bill is also an accomplished author, working predominantly in the horror field, with a number of collections and short stories to his name. His story for TISF... Souls Along the Meridian, is an unsettling account of what happens when a young woman is unwittingly involved by supernatural beings in a blood sacrifice. Please note, this story carries explicit language and is not suitable for minors. You may suspect this never happened because the old museum with the unpainted greying timber walls and the rusting iron roof burned to the ground, destroying all the unique restored steam trains inside, and yet the world survived. But all the big lies are like that. Three men, Trig Function, Wizard and Horror Story, came in the night to the point of confluence just as the steam tram running with no lights and only one passenger hiding in the darkness by the rear exit, reached the end of its half-kilometre of track. The tram blew its whistle, a lonely, strangely quiet sound that barely carried beyond the boundaries of the park, hundreds of metres distant. It was done here, said Trig Function. Done here, or just begun here, asked Horror Story. Pedantic asshole, said Wizard. But the lines are still here. I can feel them. Here, said Trig Function. Horror Story knelt and touched the earth beside the stone monument. The first trigonometric survey of the continent had originated at the astronomical observatory that had stood here 170 years earlier. Now only the few graying sandstone blocks of the original transit stones remained to show how important this place was to the rest of the world. A new continent, mapped from precisely this point. The ruins were the only remains of a location so absolutely established in relation to the stars that the foundations of the planet itself would shake if the place was destroyed. Horror Story couldn't feel if the way this place touched the rest of the continent was as special as Trig Function claimed, but he could feel the reality of the place reaching out to the sky, anchoring this continent within the cosmos. At dawn, the earth would shake. A fourteen-year-old girl, slender, brunette, pretty, who would be spoilt rotten by her father if only she would decide to remain a child forever, wearing jeans, a clinging t-shirt with no bra, and a flannelette shirt, shivered in the night air and crawled silently off the rear platform of the tram, carrying with her a small rucksack of clothing and toiletries. In her pocket she carried her identification and all the money she earned in the world. She felt angry, tired, tense, rebellious, 
and more than a little disappointed all at once. Curious, she sat on the ground behind one of a stand of weary Norfolk pines that grew leaning towards the northeast, pushed in that direction by prevailing winds. She peered out from behind the rough bark, watched the men, and listened. One of the men wore a Hawaiian shirt. She could see the pattern, but the night defeated the colours. The second was impossible to describe. Her eyes wouldn't hold on him, and as soon as her gaze slid away from him towards either of the others, all conception of his person slid from her mind. He existed in her senses, but not in her memory. Dark? Yes, he was dark, and that darkness drew her attention back to him, as if she needed to experience it more closely, and that was all she knew. The third man looked like her brother did when he was drunk, and trying to explain to her his computer, or the medical theories behind medieval legends of vampirism. She wondered when, or if, she would see him again, and that turned her faint smile towards tears. But she would see this through, of that she was certain. Her eyes were drawn back to the first man whose beer gut pushed out the front of his crude shirt. Yes, she was sure of it now. He also had a massive codpiece with a wooden phallus belted in front of his shorts. That brought a smile back through her tears. Wondering about things like that had already got her in trouble once tonight. The tram's steam whistle blew again. Now, said Trig Function, Wizard gestured. An airy wave of his right hand and a glare from his eyes suddenly grown bright and hard. The floodlight illuminating the Australian flag that stood where the tracks ended on a grassy slope blew out, showering sparks and shards of broken glass into the dirt. Wizard gestured again, and the flag burst into flame fifteen metres above the tram driver's head. At a third gesture, flame spurted three metres down out of the shattered floodlight. The tram driver jumped back and tripped on a tuft of grass. He turned and saw the watchers. Shit, did you see that? Wizard gestured a fourth time, and the flagpole crashed southwards towards the transit stones where Wizard stood with trig function and horror story. The driver jumped back from thrown up dust and glass and then ran to stamp out the flames on the flag. Trig function and horror story joined the driver. Trig function watching carefully while horror story did a mad dance, stomping his feet down heavily on the flames and jumping back into the air. Go easy, that mate, that's our flag, said the driver. But I'm not Australian, horror story said in a fake French accent and punched the driver in the neck just below the ear. Wizard laughed quietly. Trig Function and Horror Story dragged the body across the grass towards the stones. Why the games? Trig Function asked Wizard. Theatre. Potential. Style, Wizard replied. We're here for the adventure, remember? Bullshit, but thanks for letting me punch him out, Horror Story grinned. They forced the unconscious tram driver down onto the sandstone block in the gap between the two upright supports. His face turned to the sky so that he would see the stars when he died. His head pointed due north, for that was the orientation of the stones. Horror Story tied a gag into the driver's mouth and then forced the driver's left arm around the eastern support. Wizard did the same to the driver's right arm with the larger western support. They tied him there, crucified along the lines of latitude and longitude, and cut his clothes away so that his skin pressed into the cold stone. From his belt, Wizard took a wooden mallet and a rusting iron bar about two feet long, sharpened at one end. Horror Story held the driver's legs down while Wizard hammered the iron bar through the flesh of the driver's calves so that the iron rested solidly between the long bones of the lower legs. The watching girl forced aside an impulse that told her she should scream and run, and instead, 
caught her breath, shivered, and watched in fascination, trying desperately to stay quiet and unnoticed. When she was four years old, her brother had licked the blood off a cut on her arm. She had cut herself on a kitchen knife after trying to tackle him while he was drying dishes in their holiday home up north. He had worked at the wound with his teeth to make it bleed more, then cut her again to lengthen it. She had screamed at that, and then watched as the saliva dissolved the blood from around his teeth every time his mouth opened and closed as he warned her not to tell Mum and Dad. This was a thing just between them, he had said. It was their secret, and she had been fascinated by blood ever since. He was eight at the time. He never did it again, and she kept the secret. Her brother's obsession aside, she knew that society taught men to either be afraid of blood or to worship it and pretend it was some kind of macho symbol that helped them become real. TV was full of it. Danger, injury, threat, death. Blood on a woman was different. It made men strange, gave women a kind of control as the men tried to deal with the situation and became all protective and tongue-tied at the same situation. An older girl at school had taught her that. And behind all the bravado and mystique of blood was a deadly seriousness, a knowledge of a disease only two decades old, yet which had already changed the world. But here were men playing with blood as though it were harmless, as though the lottery of its power to kill didn't exist. Neither could she just abandon the tram driver. Unknowingly, he had already helped her enormously tonight, had reaffirmed her faith in the wonder of the world with his lonely late-night foray on his steam tram through the heart of the deserted park. She simply couldn't walk away. Fear and curiosity kept her watching. Did men really do these sorts of things to each other? These guys weren't simply trying to rob the driver. Something else was happening. She had to know. Wizard and Horror Story lifted the bar into position in the eroded support brackets in the stone. The driver's body became a parody of the original telescope that had once been supported there. It fits. Of course it bloody fits, fool. Horror Story ignored Wizard and instead sighted along the tram driver's inverted running shoe, as though that were important. I can see the pole star, he cried. Idiot. Idiot, am I? It's that way. Down there, he said, pointing the shoe down towards the earth so that it made a 33.55 degree angle with the horizon. But we're being watched. Did you know that? We're being watched. Trig Function looked up into the night sky. Of course we're being watched. But Horror Story ignored him and instead stared westward at the tree behind which the girl was hidden. He giggled and grabbed at his crotch with both hands. All spies should have names, was it gestured towards the tree with his right arm and glared with his eyes. He would give the girl no choice. Cindy, I'm Cindy. The girl stepped out from behind the tree and walked slowly towards the men, like a person who had control over her limbs, but none at all over her own mind. We have them both now. We have everything we need. Horror Story giggled again, jumped in the air, and thrust his pelvis towards the approaching girl. Come here, Cindy, and hold this for me. Wizard held out the blood-splattered mallet with which he had driven the metal bar through the tram driver's legs. Cindy understood that she had no choice. There could be no escaping this now. Her fear made her tremble, but she looked about her with interest as she took the mallet from Wizard. Are you doing this thing to me? This thing in my head? Adolescent curiosity is a powerful tool. You didn't answer me. Yes, I did. 
Now I want you to tap gently in this man's forehead, like this. Wizard demonstrated a speed, like a pendulum. It's the rhythm that's important. You must keep this pace. You don't like hurting people, do you? No. Cindy felt a sense of empathy, but wondered if it was genuine. This man forced her to be an accessory to murder, yet he pretended to be sensitive? No. Gently, then. Coached by Wizard's curiously soft, yet strong hands to establish a rhythm, Cindy tapped the tram driver gently on the forehead. She watched as blood ran down the driver's shins from the wounds in his ankles and around the back of his legs out of her sight. Tap, tap. The blood would be dripping off his legs to the sandstone at the same pace. The driver's head hung over the edge of the sandstone block and swung lightly back and forth. Why are you doing this? Tap, tap. Wizard ignored her question and instead asked his own. You're a very pretty girl. May I tell you that? Cindy looked away from the arcane work he had set her to and tried to focus her mind on him. She still found it impossible to say what he looked like, but the sensual darkness that had attracted her before shifted about in her sight like muddy water in a whirlpool. No, you fucking can't tell me that. Cindy thought she was about to cry again. Men did these things to each other? That made her think of a boyfriend. James was too shy for his own good. Tonight she had shown him her breasts and she could still sense the hesitant excitement of his touch and feel the heat of his panting breath on her skin. Wanting to know what the hardness of him felt and looked like, she had been trying to coax him out of his jeans when her father caught them together. The memory of that hardness and the way he had shuddered and his breath caught at her touch made her blush. She could have made him do anything for her then, anything at all, but all she had wanted was the sight of him without his clothes on and the time to enjoy that. Now, she felt cold breath against the back of her neck and was terrified of who, or what, she would see if she looked around. This time, she defeated her curiosity. It had been curiosity that had driven her to do that with James, and it was curiosity that had trapped her here when she should have gone in the other direction from the back of the tram when it stopped in the dark and now be waiting in the all-night McDonald's on Victoria Road to hitch a lift away from Parramatta. Horror Story's cold-breathed laughter moved off to the other side of the stones. She tried to scream, to let out the sudden rage. The impulse left her mind, but her lungs didn't respond. She just kept breathing, evenly, as though sitting in a chair watching TV. Tap, tap. Then she thought of her father and tried to run. But instead of going to her limbs, the impulse to flee came out her mouth. I want to go home. But then you'll miss watching what we do, said Trig Function. This will last until dawn, Horace Story boasted, and winked at her before turning to watch drops of blood fall from the driver's buttocks to the sandstone block. He's vertical, he said to Trig Function. How do you know? Yes, of course, said Trig Function. The driver might even fall in love with Wizard. That would be fun. Wizard looked briefly up from where he had laid in order on the sandstone the tools from his belt. What they call the Stockholm Syndrome? He might, but we don't want that. Love is very powerful, said Cindy, not understanding. Yes, but the love of a person is not the power that we need. Wizard gestured at the bulk of the steam tram behind him. It's the love of that thing we must have. He has it in him, and we must draw it out, give it substance. Thank heavens he isn't a Luddite, Horror Story laughed shrilly. A joke, I presume. Are we going to get on with it? Our time is drawing closer. Girl, don't forget to tap. Tap, 
tap. My name is Cindy. Trig function looked hard at the vehemence in her features, then turned back to the eastern stone pillar where the northern face had eroded away at an angle with the sunlight and the acid rain. Ignoring Cindy, but always aware of the metronomic beat of her mallet against the tram driver's forehead, he ran his fingers across the surface, searching out the irregularities, the holes that had once held wooden and metal brackets for the telescope. Yes, there's still enough of it here. Trig function and wizard continued doing things whose purpose Cindy couldn't fathom. There was too much here she didn't understand. What did your boyfriend say? Horror story asked. What? When? I forget. Then the words came tumbling unbidden from Cindy's memory, a stream of speech drawn out of her that she was powerless to resist. I'm scared. I want to do this. Are you sure it's all right? Could these men read her mind and control her thoughts? They were strange enough. The butchery that happened on the cold stones in front of her was even more bizarre. She would believe it of them. Wimps don't deserve women. What happened next? I took his hands and... Cindy forced herself to stop talking, stop herself revealing her intimacies to these creatures, and then wondered where the strength had come from. She hadn't had it before. Suddenly, she smiled up at Horror Story, and the knowledge to do that hadn't been there before either. Horror Story looked startled and turned back to the blood dripping in front of his nose. Another joke, I presume? Wizard laughed at Horror Story's discomfort. Do I have to remind you? It's time for his arms. If you forget that, we'll miss it all, Horror Story replied. Cindy wondered who was in charge of the three, or if it was some kind of anarchic concept of equality that kept them operating. They were disdainful of each other, yet the teamwork happened. Wizard turned to Cindy. You're crucial to what must happen now. You must feel some sympathy of him, and he must know that you feel it. Cindy looked down at the tram driver, whose eyes fluttered open. I don't know what they're doing to you, she whispered to him. Perfect. Stricken, she forced herself to look away. I'm going to make you hate me, her voice hardened, and she dropped the driver's head to bounce back against the stone block. Tap, tap, bash! He must remain conscious, Wizard reached out. Fire lanced along Cindy's arms from where Wizard's fingers held her, and she realised that she too also was in terrible danger. Her arms continued the metronomic tapping of their own accord with a ruthless, passionless, drum-machine precision that she couldn't achieve on her own. More mind control? Please, she whispered. The tram driver stared upwards into her eyes, crying, trying to speak around the gag in his mouth. She couldn't make out his words. He drove trams for the children in Parramatta Park on the first Sunday of every month. His only crime was making children happy. She wondered if he had family. Then the tram driver jerked, went rigid, and screamed into the gag. The steam tram's whistle blew. Cindy spun around on her knees in hope. The whistle blew again, and the tram lurched forward as its wheels screeched, metal against metal, the sound reaching out into the dark. The driver's cabin was empty. Nobody was there. Cindy turned back to see Wizard hold aloft the tram driver's left arm, severed just above the elbow. The arm dripped blood. The driver rifed against her legs. Fire played about the stump of the driver's arm, cauterizing the wound, but no human hand neared the wound or the fire, and the driver stayed conscious, and Wizard smiled a smile that Cindy hated. Wizard handed the arm to Trig Function. Cindy's eyes followed the dripping piece of bone and flesh. 
her damned curiosity trapping her again. She consciously tried to use the spectacle to faint. Torn muscle, tap. The white of bone, tap. A flap of skin, tap. The swaying movement of her body and the tap of the mallet gently onto the driver's skull as if to drive away something that might exist inside him kept her conscious. This wasn't her arm. It wasn't her body. But she rolled slowly from side to side and the mat rocked back and forth and she was trapped here just as the driver was trapped. Her eyes came to rest on the jagged stump of bone that protruded from the scorched flesh of the driver's upper arm. It bled. A thin stream of blood, watered down with heated body fat, leaked along the bone and dripped to the ground. It reminded her of... I'm not that hungry, Cindy stared at the vegetables her stepmother loaded onto her plate. You need to eat at your age. Look how skinny you are. I'm not skinny and I'm not hungry. Tell her she's got to eat, Tom. She'll be anorexic. Be a little more polite to your mother, please, Cindy. She's not my mother. That's enough. Resentful silence swirled around the table as Cindy, her stepmother, and her father all avoided the subject, all pretended the things that had to be said didn't exist. Cindy refused to look up at the others, her eyes resting instead on the hard yellowing bone of the leg of lamb that held pride of place in the centre of the table. The bone looked out of place, sticking out of the cooked meat like some phallic white steak that had been driven through the animal before it had died. There was a flash of silver in front of Cindy's staring eyes as her stepmother carved into the meat, and then a thin stream of watery, fatty blood trickled along the bone. It made Cindy feel ill. Where is it? I wanted to know where you've been in the afternoons after school. I trusted you. Don't take that tone of voice with me, young lady. Your father and I are worried about you. I trusted you. That was mine. We want to trust you, that's why. You invaded my privacy. I did not. I hardly left it lying around. You went looking for it. The diary held Cindy's fantasy life. Her dreams, her fears, her hopes, her hates, her adrenaline-laden daydreams, all detailed in a fiction where she either loved or murdered her characters. The invasion into a greater secret stunned her. Was this really her family? Then Cindy laughed. The diary held a graphic six-page description of a father being seduced by her favourite schoolteacher, a teacher who died and disintegrated into dust when the deed was done. Another fantasy where all the politicians of the world stripped their clothes off on national TV, tore holes in each other with their fingernails and teeth, and then fucked the holes with giant yellow plastic dildos. More embarrassing yet were what she sometimes felt were endless pages of wondering what it might be like to have an orgasm with another person rather than by masturbating. There are other things as well. Shopping, videos, running away with James, catching an old steam train that would magically transport her to new adventures in a foreign land. But the thing that suddenly made her laugh was the fantasy of a stepmother being accosted by bikies who slit her throat to silence her shrill complaining instead of raping her as they had originally intended. Cindy didn't hate her stepmother, but the woman just wouldn't keep her distance, constantly forcing herself into Cindy's life. I don't think you'll be seeing that boy again for some time if this is what you want. Her stepmother pulled a tattered exercise book out of her handbag and waved it under Cindy's nose. Cindy grabbed at it, but the book was whisked out of her reach. I don't think so, young lady. I'm going to show this to my doctor. Honey, do you really think... I'm in here. Do you know that? I'm in this book and you're standing up for her all the time. 
This time, Cindy did manage to grab the book. She ran out of the dining room, surprised that nobody followed her. As she climbed out her bedroom window to go and visit James, her thoughts were of the fatty blood dripping off the end of the lamb bone. The bitch never did cook the meat enough. Let me explain to you the mechanics of what we're doing here, said Trig Function. Each of you human beings, the three of us, in fact, all self-aware, intelligent, organic creatures throughout the universe, are receptacles, vessels, if you like, for a soul. Now, souls can be bonded to inanimate... Cindy became aware of what Trig Function was saying. I don't want to hear it, she shouted. Trig Function stopped and smiled gently at her, bestowing on her the gift of his intelligence, his knowledge, before continuing. But knowing it will, I don't want to know... Five minutes later, Wizard handed the tram driver's other arm to Trig Function, who arranged both arms, driving the bones deep into the supports on the top of the pillars of stone, so that the arms reached across the gap between the stones. He laced the fingers together and laid a finely ground glass lens into the cupped hands. To focus the soul, said Trig Function. Midnight in thirty seconds, said Wizard. The lens must be horizontal. It must point to the zenith. Cindy groaned, dragged further out of her memories by their madness. His heart must be directly underneath. Trig Function rearranged the driver's body. There, twenty seconds. Not allowed the gift of unconsciousness by Wizard, the tram driver looked up into Cindy's face. She saw the agony in his eyes, the encroaching insanity, the complete lack of understanding, and she wanted to ease his suffering. She leaned down over him and pressed her cheek against his chest then jerked as her arm unconsciously swung the mallet under her body at the side of his head. Wizard dragged her back. He must be able to see the stars at midnight. Cindy knew it was about to happen then. She hadn't expected that. In five seconds the driver would die. She lifted his head to hold his untouched face against her breasts and wept. Tap! Tap! No! Trig Function shouted. Cindy didn't hear. Trig Function grabbed her and threw her away from the dying man at the moment of his death. Midnight! Cindy screamed and looked up. Midnight. It's done, Wizard shouted. He gestured and grinned, and Cindy flinched away, expecting more horror. Horror story caught her around her hips and thrust at her from behind, a massive pelvic thrust that knocked her to the ground. Trig Function winked, drew a slide rule from his pocket, and smacked it into the palm of his hand. It's done, Wizard repeated. We don't need you for the rest. The tram whistle blew as if questioning the darkness as if expecting a journey. Its wheels spun screeching against rails, the sound pitching higher and higher towards an audibility that set Cindy's teeth on edge. But nobody was on board. The trees about the tram lurched as if in a sudden gale, but there was no wind. Horror Story fiddled at the waist of his shorts and pulled the giant phallus off his codpiece. He offered it to Cindy, business end first. My gift to you, he said, and leered at her. Keep your fucking gift. She buried her head against the dead tram driver's bloody chest and wept. We should kill her now. Horror Story winked at the other men. More jokes, yes? They spoke as if Cindy wasn't there, yet she knew that all three were acutely aware of her and had been all throughout their strange ritual. They had come in the night and each of them had offered her a gift, a token of what gave them their identity. Firstly, a compliment from Wizard that she knew now was sincerely felt. Secondly... The gift of knowledge from Trig Function, however arcane and ultimately self-defeating that knowledge might be. And thirdly, the gift of manhood from Horror Story, even though that gift was the most insulting of all. 
They were simply offering her a part of themselves because that was the only gift they were capable of imagining. That she had spurned them all, rejected their offerings, let alone their right to even consider these things as gifts, gave her a little power over them. Not much, but it was a power they resented. Now they would kill her and end her pain. Wizard gestured, and Cindy passed out as though she had fallen into a deep well. She heard their voices fade into a great distance. Words such as search the meridians, trams, and driver's soul slipped past her consciousness. This was the knowledge she had rejected, and now it was lost. Good riddance. She felt a moment of relief that she no longer had to feel responsible for what had occurred. Then, nothing. After first light, but before the sun rose to touch the transit stones, Cindy woke. She brushed dirt, leaves and fragments of stone from her shirt and shook out her hair. Goosebumps stood up on her skin and she shivered. She wanted a hot shower, but the possibility of that was as remote to her as the concept of going home. There was only a light sprinkling of blood in her clothes, but the stench of death lay all around her as if an inversion lay held it to the ground. She rolled away from the smell and pushed herself unsteadily to her feet. Her ears ached and she felt a vibrant expectancy as if the ground itself shivered, waiting. If the men were still here, she would scream and run. It was light. There must be somebody about who could help her. But the men were gone. The carcass remained, butchered now beyond any semblance of humanity. It must have taken them hours, hours during which she lay insensible beside them, hours during which they could have done anything to her but chose not to. Another gift damn them. She rolled over and vomited. Dawn was near. She had to be gone before the body and the blood were found. But the tram hung in the air, a metre from the ground, a cloud of dust shimmering under it, the ground below invisible as if the hard-packed dirt and grass had been obliterated. The ground for tens of metres in every direction was covered centimetres thick in a blanket of dust as fine as talcum powder. The tram pointed due north, raring to go, like a hunting dog on a leash. Its wheel shivered like a drum, spinning at thousands of RPM and glowing with a heat she felt against her cheeks thirty metres away. Yet there was silence. If there was a sound, it was pitched too high for her to hear. The vehicle rocked from side to side like it was young and alive and wanted to throw itself at the world at full throttle, the first train to roll along a newly built rail line on a newly discovered continent. The dawn air held attention as if the spinning wheels of the tram actually screamed an insanely high-pitched potential that threatened disaster. She looked at the carcass of the tram driver and had a hunch. Perhaps it would work, perhaps not, but it would be worth it to her to simply thwart the will of the men who had abused her curiosity, who had made her love the nameless tram driver even while he died. Cindy lifted the tram driver's cold, dead brain from where it lay atop the eastern pillar of the transit stones. She carried the brain like she was trying to hold water in her hands to the driver's cabin of the tram. Putting the brain for a moment on the floor of the cabin, she climbed across the void below the wheels and into the tram. She left the driver's brain on the cracked brown leather of his seat where he had so enjoyed that part of his life. The tram's whistle screamed into the still morning air. She went back and took the driver's heart from the space under the sandstone arch on top of the western pillar and placed it beside his brain on the seat. She felt something pass out of her then, 
The tram quietened beneath her feet and sank to the ground. The morning became a little less bright, a little less intense, just a normal sunrise in city air. She felt a sense of loss that left her emotions cold and hard, as though she had never loved, laughed or felt anger. But she wanted to be angry now, more than anything else, and after that, to be sad. She grabbed her rucksack, walked down to the river to wash in the muddy water, and left. When the sun rose from a direction 33.55 degrees north of east and touched the perfectly flat surface on the top of the transit pillars, it found nothing but dead, dried blood. It's been four years since that night. I've already told you that the collection of old carriages, steam trams and locomotives burnt to the ground. Now you can guess why. Of course you can guess. You aren't stupid. I did it the next night, the night on the opposite side of the equinox, the day when both night and day are of equal length, the day when the Earth's axis passes precisely through the terminator of both North and South Poles. I did it so that the events of that night could never be repeated. I still don't know why the equinox was significant, nor have I found a mechanism to link the tram driver's sacrificial death to the supernatural behaviour of the tram in a way that would leave me sane. I don't know what the police made of a 20-ton steam tram lying embedded in the dirt at right angles to the tracks it had once rolled along, though it was fun reading what the newspapers made of it. Yet I'm certain all this was important, just as I'm certain that, for a few hours until dawn, I became a vessel for the tram driver's soul in a way not intended by the men who sacrificed him. I never went home again. If it was only me running away because I was pissed off at my father and my stepmother, then I think I would have hung out at McDonald's for a few hours and then chickened out and gone home before the family woke up in the morning. For after what I had experienced that night, there was nothing I could say to my family that they were capable of listening to, nothing I could say to James that he would want to hear, and nothing any of them could say to me. I often go back to Parramatta Park, once, even on the dawn of an equinox. Rumours speak of the local council burning down the old museum. I don't know why, I haven't told anybody otherwise. People also say that the carriages and locomotives have been restored, and that the museum will be rebuilt for all the children who love old trains. If so, I won't burn it down again. I want to know. I want to see what happens my damn curiosity again. I nearly cried when I saw that some of the tram driver's blood still stained the transit stones, but then I was glad that something of him was still there, so close to a place he loved. This month's review book is The Gene Thieves by Maria Quinn. With so many good unpublished science fiction writers in Australia looking for a book deal, it comes as a big disappointment that the latest so-called science fiction novel from Harper Voyager, The Gene Thieves, isn't a book I can recommend. Touted as a near-future thriller, the plot is about the kidnapping of a genetic scientist's baby in order to pressure him to hand over the secret of his latest scientific breakthrough, a gene therapy that will endow the recipient with everlasting life. 
That's about the extent of the science fiction aspects of the book, apart from a few throw-in phrases about maglev trains and some such. So to call the novel science fiction is a definite misnomer, and really, pretty much an insult to fans of science fiction who might, as a result, be sucked into buying it. Calling the Gene Thieves a thriller is unfortunately also misleading. The plot, when it isn't stumbling over yawning gaps in logic, is unbelievably static, with most of the action occurring off-camera or being talked about in retrospect. The climactic scene where the baby is rescued is so illogical it is laughable. Our heroes discover the baby is locked in a room, secured by a sophisticated booby-trapped keypad, and they have to get hold of classified code-breaking equipment from the US government in order to bypass this fiendish device. The fact that the baby is being held in an upstairs bedroom in an ordinary suburban house, which presumably has a window they could climb through, seems to have escaped the top agents brought in to help. To make matters worse, the characters in The Gene Thieves are reminiscent of the lowest of the low pulp fiction, one-dimensional and delivering stultifying dialogue. I can perhaps understand a novel like The Gene Thieves could be seen as a means to broaden the reader base for science fiction in Australia with a softer kind of SF melded in with a crossover exciting thriller story. But this novel isn't well enough realised to achieve that. No stars. The Gene Thieves by Maria Quinn is published in Australia by Harper Voyager. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of their publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. <laughs> <laughs>